Hey, it's Zach. I'm the president of Civic Ventures. You know, before I worked here with Nick, I was a political operative. That means that I was paid to win political campaigns. And so I've done a lot of thinking about what does all this economics mean for how we win? And I have to say that some of the people I've talked to that I find the most interesting are the ones who are thinking very hard about how we win on economics. And the question that is probably the most important question there is, how do we win on growth? And really what we mean by that is how do we convince the average American that our policies are going to benefit them? It's both going to be policies that are good for them in terms of equity and justice and fairness, but also it's going to be good for them in terms of it's going to improve their lives and make their futures brighter. For a long time, progressives and Democrats, they were not able to answer this question. And I thought I'd call my friend Michael Linden, talk to him about it. Hey, Michael, it's Zach. Zach, how are you, man? I'm good. Uh, I'm Michael Linden. I'm the executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative, which is a economic policy-focused organization uh, based here in Washington. Uh, I'm also a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. That's great. And how long have you been in D.C., Michael? I've been in D.C. for 13 years. Um, I, I got here in the summer of 2007. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, and my parents still live there, and I go back all the time. So I try to keep uh, one foot in non-D.C. Uh, world. That's good. And uh, as a reminder, you, you spent some time on the Hill, too, in addition to the work you're doing outside, right? I did. I did. I spent a couple of years working for Senator Patty Murray. You're familiar with her, of course. She was the chair of the Budget Committee when I joined the Budget Committee in 2013, I think it was, and or 20 maybe 20 maybe early 2014. And then after the 2014 election, she became the ranking member on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and I went with her to that to that committee and worked on economic policy from that perch. You've got a, an insider's view and an outsider's view, and that's always makes you more valuable than many of your fellow D.C. residents. So, <laughs> Well, most D.C. residents are regular, everyday Americans doing you know, normal, everyday jobs. That's right. Wanna, it's always important to remember that 700,000 people live here in D.C., and most of them are doing jobs that you would find uh, in any other town, and none of them have a vote in Congress. So as my normal plug for D.C. statehood. Yeah, right on. D.C. <laughs> statehood. I'm all there. Hey, so we're going to talk about winning on growth. There's obviously a lot of conversation about the economy. The president uh, in some ways wants to make this election about the economy. We have this presidential uh, nomination process for the Democrats where there's a lot of chatter about how best to talk about the economy. And we read about it, it seems like, every day. And of course, we here at Pitchfork Economics in our podcast we talk a lot about economics and pitchforks, yeah, roughly in that order. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things I appreciate about what you guys have done is you have really done some probing into this idea that you can and should win on growth um, with some pretty specific ideas about how that might happen. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, for sure. So I think the first thing to understand is that when most people think about growth, they aren't actually thinking about gross domestic product, mm -hmm. right? Most people don't know what GDP is, nor should they. I think when we talk about growth and when we use it in an economic stand, uh, from an economic standpoint, 
I think we should remember that most people think of it as, are things getting better? Hmm. Uh, are things better for me and my family? And can I imagine them getting better for my children over time? Are things better tomorrow than they are today? And that is the economic concept on which I think progressives absolutely have to win. And it is true that when there's more to go around, when we have grown, when our economy has gotten bigger, it is usually the case that everybody is doing better off. But it is not always the case. And one of the things that's really important to remember, I think, from a both political standpoint and an economic standpoint, is that we are really talking about our people's lives getting better, are the vast majority of people's lives getting better. And, and that is shorthand. The term growth, I think, is shorthand for that. Now, there's obviously a technical definition that economists use, but everyday Americans are thinking about that shorthand. And one of the challenges that we have as progressives is that for the last 40 years, the American public has been told that there is a trade-off between that idea of growth, things are getting better, and a general conception of what you might call fairness, a system that is fairer. And it's true that Americans want a system that is fair. They want people to have a fair shot. They want people to be playing by the same rules. But they've been told that you can either have fairness or you can have growth. Yeah, that it's a choice. And it's a choice. Yeah. And then if you have more fairness, you'll get less growth. And if you have more growth, you might get less fairness. But everybody will be better off because there's more growth. Because remember, that's what people think of as growth. Things are getting better. And so we have to break that trade-off. It, it turns out from an economic standpoint, from an empirical standpoint, it's wrong. Yeah. Right. It's just wrong. It is not true that a system that is more, quote unquote, fair leads to less growth. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But we really have to prove that to the American people because we have been told for such a long time that that is a fundamental trade off in the economy. And it's wrong. And we have to fight on those terms. I really appreciate that redefinition. You know, we talk a lot around here, this obsession that the political press corps and elites have with these, what are just, let's admit it, artificial numbers as a way to define growth. You know, the GDP is up, the stock market is up. Even the jobs numbers don't actually speak to, is your life improving? Is the average American's lives improving? And by the way, this is a phenomenon that was at play under the Obama administration. They perpetually touted how great their top line numbers were, but you know, if you looked at the election of 2016, a lot of people were hurting and didn't look at that economy and say, I see myself in this. I see my life getting better. And now it's even worse under Trump, of course, because by almost every metric, people's lives are harder than they were when the president was elected. But this obsession by the elites and the media storytellers with those old metrics, it's it's not this question of is my life better? The average American. Yeah, that, that's right. And but it comes from a it, it, old is the right word. It, it's this mm -hmm. old idea of how the economy is supposed to work. And it used to be it did. It is true that it used to be that if overall GDP was going up, that was a relatively good proxy for a typical middle class family, typical white middle class family, we should say, which is certainly how most of the economic elites thought of things in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? And it used to be that when the economy overall was getting bigger, that everyday people, by and large, were feeling some effect of that. And that relationship got divorced 
in the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s. And over the last 40 years, it's no longer the case that just because the overall economy is getting bigger, that everyone is doing better. And that's because the economy has really become very concentrated. All of the power, all of the money, all of the wealth has become concentrated at the very, very top. And it allows people at the top to essentially siphon off the gains from overall growth. And this is why it's really important to think about growth as is are people's lives actually getting better? Because overall growth for growth's sake, where all the gains are going to the top one, two, three, four, five percent, that doesn't mean very much to people. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's that's great. Oh, good. GDP is up by 4%. My wages are the same as they've been for the last 10 years, right? Which of those two things matters more to people? Definitely the latter, you know, or, hey, the economy is getting bigger and, and going up, but so is my healthcare premiums. And the healthcare premiums is the part that actually matters to people. So we really have to focus on growth as a shorthand for people's well-being. And it is also true. I will say this is this is this is a I know this is a bit of a debate even on the left here. But it is also true that when there is more to go around, it does make it it should make it easier for everybody's lives to be getting better. So that's why it is important for us to be talking about, you know, growing the economy overall. But it's not just that more there's more to go around. It actually has to go around. Yeah. Right? There can be more to go around, but it's like all still in you know, Jeff Bezos's house. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't really work that way. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think there's this obsession with these top line numbers, GDP, uh, the, uh, the stock market, which is stock market is completely, I mean, my quick rant about the stock market, which I'll always say to people is most Americans don't own a single share of, of stock, even in retirement accounts. And the top 10% of Americans own roughly 80% of the value of the entire stock market. So the stock market is only a good metric of how rich people are doing. It's not a good metric of the economy. Yeah, totally. uh, so we really got to we really got to find a different way to measure how regular people are doing. Yeah, you know one of the things about the old um, that got confused is that they there was this idea that oh you know if the tide is rising all boats will rise. Right. But one of the things that they really misunderstood is what was causing the tide to rise, and what really got gummed up is this idea that if we uh, you know, cut taxes for the wealthy and powerful, deregulate the powerful in corporations, and suppress wages. That's what causes the tide tide to rise. Right, and that is just as you know, horseshit. And part of it is because th it is mixing cause and effect. The cause of that rising tide, in which everybody did uh, prosper. You know, mostly as you said before, uh, white people. But the, the idea was this. I, the, the rising tide was being caused by making massive investments in people, by having smart, high standards in our regulatory regimes, and, of course, by focusing on wages and really fair worker standards. Those are the things that were yeah. happening in the 40s, 50s, and 60s that were producing all this growth. You know, And then, obviously, it all gets unwound, and it's not a surprise that once you decoupled smart policies that were, were good for working people— from uh, growth, the growth was happening, but people weren't benefiting. That's exactly right, and I think that's such a that's such a smart point. That the, the problem with the rising tide lifts all boats metaphor is it gets the causality exactly backwards. What you just said is exactly right, and unfortunately, we don't have a good metaphor 
that really captures that because you can't really be like, well, listen, we what we did is we invested in a lot of different boats, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what you know got the tide to rise. <laughs> we put so many boats in the ocean, the tide rose. Uh, that metaphor doesn't quite work, but that's actually that is the actual causality, right? It's not a surprise that in the early 1980s, when we did a couple of big changes to our federal policy that then uh, filtered out into the states, you know, we cut taxes for rich people and corporations. We basically stopped prosecuting antitrust claims, and we sort of let these giant corporations just get bigger and bigger. And we allowed and facilitated an attack on unions. Uh, We did all of those things while pursuing a trade policy that essentially allowed us to outsource, allowed corporations to outsource enormous numbers of jobs without ever compensating people who lost out on that. Uh, And then you ended up with an economy where it's really, really good if you're rich. And for everybody else, it's a really, really tough slog. Out of curiosity, who is doing this well? You know, when you look out in the landscape, are there institutions, individuals uh, that are are talking about winning on growth or, or this kind of lens well? Yeah, I think there's a, I think there are people who are coming around to it. And look, it's like any other big change in the way we think of, of anything. It, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes lots of different people saying this in lots of different ways to really seep in. You know, I know I know uh, uh, whose whose podcast this is, but I think, you know, <laughs> Nick Hanauer does a good job of talking about where does growth and prosperity come from. And one of the things that I really like about his conception of this is he really puts at the center of the economic story a new hero, right? The hero that we have been told of the economic story for the last 40 years is rich people and who, quote unquote, create jobs, right? You think about the term job creator, it really boils down uh, the entire kind of overarching narrative of how the economy works incorrectly into those two words. Rich people sitting in a boardroom decide today we will create two jobs. Great. Good job, everybody. And then they leave, right? Like that's a great little two-word phrase. But in fact, they're not the hero of the economic story. The hero of the economic story is everyday people who get up every morning and go to work and take care of their families and their communities. And it's their hard work and their consumption and their ingenuity that actually drives an economy. And I think that Nick does a very nice job of centering regular, everyday, hardworking people as the hero of the economic story. And that is what leads to growth. So I think, I think that's one example. I, I'm a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, I think there's a bunch of people at Roosevelt who've done a really nice job of talking about this. I think, you know, Heather Boucher, who is uh, the executive director of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, their entire mission is to talk about equitable growth, growth that actually produces an economy where people are getting are seeing those gains on an equitable basis. So I think that's really, really valuable. Uh, you know, I hesitate to, to, to name names in the in the political sphere because I don't want to take sides. Um, <laughs> but but I think there are some folks who are running for president or who are in the Senate or who are in the House uh, who are talking about, you know, a progressive vision for growth and how do we make an economy so that people are doing better over time. Well, it does seem to have been a shift. You know, I've been a close observer of this for a while now. And, uh, you know, obviously Nick has been a big part of that and he's got a platform. But, you know, it used to be a feeling of being out in the wilderness, largely alone. And now there seems to be a group of 
you know, fellow travelers, some of whom you have already outlined it, something has uh, changed. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's a couple things that's changed. First of all, it's really hard to have lived through the last 10 years, the enormity of the Great Recession, the, the response to the Great Recession, politically and economically, um, the slowness of the recovery, the fact that here we are 10 years later since the recession has technically ended and there's, you know, a long-term unemployment is still elevated. Wages are, are growing at much slower rates than you would expect given the unemployment rate, all of these things. It's very hard to have lived through these last 10 years and look around and say, oh yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> everything's working the way it should. And so I think that that, just the facts on the ground have really led to a rethinking of, of how the economy uh, operates. And then I also think that there's just been an enormous amount of empirical research, just flat out economics research, economists who are winning awards left and right for their, for their cutting edge research. And they're showing things that just don't comport with that conception of how the economy was supposed to have worked over the last 40 years. And that just takes time to filter into our brains. Uh, and I think that is starting to happen. And I think that's a big that's a big reason. And then, of course, we should not ignore the election of Donald Trump, which I think really sparked, uh, especially on the left, a rethinking of what kind of an economic story we are telling and how it is is or is not resonating with everyday people and fitting in with their lived experience. Yeah. Um, and so I think all three of those things has really come, have really come together to produce this moment where there is real change. You're absolutely right. There's a lot more people out there talking about what a new vision of how the economy should operate can look like. There's very good reasons to do this for storytelling purposes. There's obviously excellent reasons to do this for policy purposes and improving people's lives. And then the other thing is, it's a winner. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, yeah. as you said, <laughs> you are centering a supermajority of the population as the heroes of the story. You could confront the lies that our opponents are telling as they're trying to protect the narrow interests of the top 10%. And most importantly, people want this idea that you're telling me I don't have to choose between fairness and growth, that if I get fairness, I get growth. If I, if I treat people better and I myself am treated better, my life is going to improve and my future for my children is going to improve. Who wouldn't choose that, right? Right. That's exactly right. We, we are telling them, based on actual empirical research, we're not just making it up, that the values they already hold, fairness, justice, inclusion, stability, security, that these things are actually smart economic strategies. And we can back it up. We can back it up with research and examples and policy. But we should tell people that those values that they already hold are smart economics. And the problem is that for the last 40 years, they've been told that those values that they hold are not good economics, that they can either choose those values or they can be for a strong economy. And that is backwards. Where does this conversation take place in community? There's obviously political operatives and, you know, fellows at think tanks and people who work in, in D.C. politics. It's important they're having this conversation. But is there an, a way that, you know, people who might be listening to this podcast that aren't involved in that way, how do they start having these conversations? How do they engage in this? That's a great question. I mean, I think it sort of depends. If, if it's somebody 
who's listening right now and they're interested in politics and economics, but they don't necessarily get involved in local issue advocacy or local politics, that's fine. I think the way that they start having these conversations is they bring it up with their friends and families and they they start noticing maybe some of the evidence around them that shows that this intuition that they have and that this new um, way of thinking of the economy really is true. Hey, did you did you notice that in Seattle, after they raised the $15 minimum wage, there are more restaurant jobs than there were before? And just kind of talking about this stuff and seeing it in their own lives, I think is actually super valuable because I think the only way that we change the overarching worldview that people have around how the economy works is that they hear it. Folks have to hear it so many different times and from different people. Hopefully they're hearing it on this podcast and internalizing it and thinking it's interesting and valuable, but they also need to hear it from their neighbors, from their friends, from their you know, coworkers, from their religious leaders. And certainly that's how the, uh, the dominant conservative economic worldview got, got adopted. People were hearing it in lots of different places. So even if you're not deeply involved in politics or economics, I think just having conversations with people and seeing what feels resonant from this, I think is a really important, important way to, to get involved. If you are involved in local advocacy or local issues, then the, the thing I would ask is think about how your issue fits into this broader framework, which is not to say you don't need to focus on your issue. You should, but almost everything that you, that, you know, folks are fighting for out in all 50 states, higher minimum wage, paid family medical leave, higher taxes uh, on the wealthy, uh, ending cash bail, immigration reform, you, you name it, all of those things actually fit into this broader framework of how to build an economy that is growing and growing for regular people. That's great. We always ask people one last question before, before we leave them, and that's, uh, why do you do this work? I mean, I genuinely believe that we can have a country and a society where the vast majority of people are doing better every day uh, and that their children are going to do better than they did. I think we've lost our way on that question, and it's important that we get, that we get it back. And, and I'll say one other thing, one of the things that really motivates me, especially right now, a new economic worldview is coming, whether we like it or not. In some ways, Donald Trump represents uh, the beginnings of this new worldview. Now, he is, he is in many ways just a vestige of the old worldview. He loves cutting taxes for rich people. He loves deregulating uh, for corporations. He loves Wall Street. Like That's all the normal conservative trickle-down stuff, right? That's, that's nothing that that is new. But what Trump does represent is, a, is an approach where he is weaponizing dog-whistle, race-based, xenophobic attacks you know, to build a, a, an economic paradigm or a worldview that, that basically says, we're going to do all the things that we should be doing, uh, but only for essentially white working class people or white people, frankly, and uh, white native born people. And so we have a choice going forward. We can either have a post neoliberal world that is multiracial and inclusive and, and, uh, and really lives our values. Or we can have a kind of Trumpian worldview where he's using the power of the government to protect his narrow, uh, his narrow base and his friends. So 
we, we kind of have to win that fight. Yeah. And it's a fight, by the way, that, that's happening all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. You see it with the rise of right-wing authoritarians all over the world. And we have to win that fight. And we have to show that multiracial, inclusive econo- economy and democracy is the only path forward. Wow. Well, Michael, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm really glad to be in the fight with you. Same here. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, this is re- really fun. Terrific. I'll see you the next time. Sounds good. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.